Hey y'all, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about PG&E and a co-op push, uh, Airbnb banning some house parties, or rather party houses, uh, a rent freeze in Los Angeles along with a, an affordable housing push in the coming year, and some other uh, situations relating to rental prices and specifically City Council President Herb Wesson. Uh, we'll also go into some details about a presentation that was made by a doctor who had studied the long-term health impacts of the Aliso Canyon gas storage facilities leak. And uh, but first, we're going to go ahead and jump straight into some up some very recent elections and some strong wins from uh, people's action candidates and other progressives across the country. Um, but yeah, how's it going, Bushido? It's going pretty well. Yeah. So uh, we'll just go ahead and jump into uh, election stuff uh, because Tuesday, November 5th was a big election day across the nation uh, for states and cities that haven't fully aligned their elections. So L.A. didn't really have anything going on. I don't think there was an election day in L.A. Um, To tell on myself, I forgot to vote on a a bond measure here in Phoenix um, for school funding, but it it, it passed anyways. (laughs) Um, Our... Our registrar's map was completely useless. It was like I tried at the last minute when I realized there was an election because I had a meeting with someone and they were wearing the I voted button <laughs> and that, sticker. And I was like, oh, crap, I have to go vote. And so they have like the the voting, you know, uh, the polling stations, not like the, the neighborhood polling stations that we're used to, but just like the come and show your ID and then you vote in your, your district there. Um, and I went to look at the map and it was just absolute crap. And it just vexes me so that in the year of our Lord, 2019, <laughs> our government still doesn't know how to internet good. Do they, um, do they not know how to internet good or that, do they was a lot of people. don't want you to know where to go to vote? Because uh, you still live in a state well, with apparently a bunch of in voting things. Well, apparently in 2018, um, all of the maps were broken, including those paid for by the Democrats and like big party oh, like super okay. PACs and big money super PACs. So like it was, you know, in 2016, Arizona had the two and a half hour long oh, lines. That's right. In 2018, they didn't because nobody could figure out where mm-hmm. to show up. It was um, very broken on every level. And I mean, the last time I voted here was sort of fine-ish, except like I called in a violation on the yes on 105 and 106 people for driving a billboard truck through the parking lot of a polling precinct and was told, oh, well, you know, is there a sign that says where the limit is? I'm like, well, yeah, it's on the sidewalk, but they literally drove like two feet past that. And it's a gigantic billboard. And they're like, oh, yeah, that doesn't count. And I was thinking, like, in California, the parking lots count. Like, it's not from where the polling actually happens. It's, like, from where the entrance is. And so, like, you're pushed out past the parking lot generally. In Arizona, it's literally not. It was literally, like, where the sidewalk end. And you could stand, like, six inches away from that and hold a sign electioneering. And I was like, this is is terrible and dumb. Um, but also they lost by uh, a huge margin. So all of their cheating didn't help. Uh, but let's turn our eyes to Tuesday, uh, because across the nation, there were a bunch of like local elections and a lot of them bode really well for a coming progressive wave in both March and November, 2020. Uh, so let's go ahead and chat about, uh, some of the victories in California. But before we do that, I did want to flag 
something that went down here in Arizona, uh, specifically Prop 205, which would have made it harder for local police in Tucson to cooperate with ICE and CBP. So 205 was written and pushed by uh, the People's Defense Initiative, sorry, was written and pushed by the People's Defense Institute, which has a lot of buy-in and members that are DSA members and other local activists. Uh, but the measure was unequivocally opposed by every elected official in, t in Tucson, including the newly elected mayor, Regina Romero, who was a city councilwoman. Uh, she won the mayorship with the backing of Lucha, which is a people's action group, mm -hmm. just like uh, Ground Game is. Uh, and then she was replaced in her city council seat by another uh, Lucha uh, uh uh, by another Lucha endorsed candidate, Miss um, Santa Cruz. Uh, this was a really big win for like progressives in Tucson, but also kind of came at a cost for activists. And the the opposition to 205 was largely based on the belief that 205 would jeopardize state funding tied to compliance with SB 1070, which is Arizona's Show Me Your Papers law. So 205 lost by a wide margin, perhaps due to the fact that the local government spent government funds to run an anti-205 oh, ad campaign. They were taken to court by PDI, uh, and that lawsuit was thrown out. Uh, but this fight is really far from over. Like, there were a lot of people who backed the idea of 205. Even Regina Romero, after she won, came out and said she liked the idea and wanted to do something to cut back against Prop 1070, or, sorry, against SB 1070. Uh, but she was also vocally opposed to passing 205. So there's a little bit of wiggle room there that a lot of politicians are taking. Uh, let's turn our eyes to California, where we had a couple of like really yeah, big wins did. up in San oh, Francisco. So, so first off, uh, Chesa Bodine, a former public defender, bested Mayor Breed's appointed district <laughs> attorney, Susie Loftus. And we covered this one quite a bit. And this is a big oh, win yeah. for progressive criminal legal system reforms. Uh, Budin campaigned on a platform to hold police accountable for violence, to change the way the city deals with its unhoused population, and to change how low-level offenses are prosecuted. And Loftus, as we reported, wasted almost no time in her appointment in rolling back reforms that were put in place by Gascon, who stepped down to run for district attorney here in L.A. County. The other thing to note is that Chezo was targeted with more than $600,000 worth of ads from the Patrol Officers Association, which is basically like a police union or like a police beneficence association. And I'm happy to say that that was money well wasted. Yeah, it was. Uh, the other big win that we want to talk about is Dean Preston, who was a progressive candidate who was running for a uh, county supervisor, which like San Francisco, unlike L.A., has its city and county governments aligned. So effectively, the board of supervisors is the city council. It's kind of a strange I mean, government kind of, structure as opposed to like how L.A. and a lot of cities yes, organize themselves. Yes, but it themselves. also like makes sense because it is like a one to one matchup of the city and the county of San Francisco have the same boundaries. Yes. So it makes sense it's, it's pretty yeah, tiny. it's only what 700 and something thousand people yeah it's not it's not huge but it does make sense for the way that like San Francisco is structured yeah. for them to do that. But Preston ran an unapologetically democratic socialist oh, yeah, campaign, yeah. which is really refreshing to see there we're seeing more DSA people coming out and saying, hey, I'm a DSA member and I'm running for office and then winning. Um, now, it's not completely in the bag for Preston yet, because this is perhaps the closest choice ranked voting election in the city's history right now. He's ahead by around 131 votes, like razor thin margin yeah. at this point. Uh, but it looks like he is going to eke this win out. And that would be great because the woman that he beat, who was the incumbent uh, county uh, supervisor, uh, came into a 
bunch of like scandal towards the end of this election cycle when it was revealed that she illegally evicted a bunch of tenants back in the 80s and then lied about why she did it. Um, And court records disproved everything she was saying about saying like, oh, they weren't paying rent. And then like all the court receipts came out showing that all of her tenants had been paying rent. They were paying very low rent because it was like a a heavily rent controlled building. Um, But she kicked them all out in order to charge higher rent. And this was even before gentrification really hit the city of San Francisco as hard as it is now. But uh, that apparently cost her quite a bit, um, at least enough for her to to lose this election, apparently. Uh, Let's move on to... So, as I've mentioned several times, uh, Ground Game is a member of People's Action, which is a large national organizing body that works to create local power and kind of bring together progressive organizations into alignment and orientation to work on national campaigns with local buy-in. So in New York, Jermaine Williams won re-election as the city's public advocate, which is a non-voting member of the city council and acts as an ombudsman of the as sorry, and acts as an ombudsman for the city. Uh, The public advocate can also uh, introduce uh, legislation and can comment on it, but he's not allowed to vote on it. And up until, I want to say, the 90s, the public advocate was kind of the de facto chair of the city council, but now it's kind of a rotating chairmanship. So, yeah, that's... And Jumaine Williams, like I said, he won re-election. He's held the seat for four years, um, has been doing a really great job at it, and is kind of part of this push for more transparency in large local governments. Because the city of New York, in case you didn't know, is uh, pretty big. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Nice, nicely and understated then, there. Yeah. <laughs> big, yeah, biggest city in the nation. Who knew? The, the large <laughs> apple or something. Anyways, I'm going to stop with my jokes now. Uh, so let's let's talk yeah. about Virginia because this is a huge one. So Virginia is now a fully oh, democratic yeah, government for the first time in 26 oh, so years, good. and this included the election, or sorry, the re-election of Lee Carter, another Democratic Socialist candidate who, in his first election, bested a longtime GOP incumbent to win the seat and faced a lot of like big national money sweeping into. A fairly small local race, uh, but he handily won. A couple of other very progressive, and I believe DSA candidates won, uh, which a really, really good thing. And Lee wasted really no time uh, in jumping on his. Yeah, exactly. Box. So he's been basically one of our favorite legislators to emerge in the last few years, uh, in no small part because he really does have an absolute masterful control over how to use Twitter. Uh, I, I would say like second only really to like uh, AOC, and so. He really stepped up to the plate this morning, uh, weighing in on something that is like uh, an unfolding situation that is truly tragic down in uh, South America. And it's been this process for the last week or so with uh, protests and uh, basically like a CIA backed coup going on in Bolivia. And it's not really getting nearly enough attention here in the States. I actually was listening to uh, some NPR coverage of it, and they really were hammering on this idea that, you know, uh, that the there was there were all these irregularities in, in the elections, and that it was being uh, that this edict that had come down from the uh, the panel on the Americas or whatever the hell it's called at this point. Oh no, the uh, Organization yes, of the American Organization States, American which States. is basically a U.S. backed. Uh, kind of group of governments and civilian oversight. Uh, OAS uh, also uh, part of the, uh, you know, provided people to the yeah. School of the Americas, which gave us such winning Southern, like Southern American leaders as Manuel Noriega, yeah. uh-huh. a CIA asset who decided to take over an entire government, which the U.S. was fine with until he got a little bit 
uh, too anti-American with it, and then we kind of like yeah. overthrew him in one of the silliest, weirdest like military interventions <laughs> of the George W. Bush or sorry George H. W. W. H. Yes. Bush regime. Because let's not forget H. W. Bush was oh, a company man. Yes, he was like literally director of the CIA before Absolutely. he was. President. So getting back to what Lee had said, so uh, I'm just going to quote straight from his Twitter this morning. Uh, quote to summarize what's happening in Bolivia: the socialist president who presided over the country's greatest economic expansion in living memory just won re-election. And his opposition started dragging members of his party out of their homes and murdering people until he resigned. The poor will suffer. Mm-hmm. And this, to put a, sorry, to, to put a fine point on that one before we move on to the rest of his quote, uh, one of uh, one of uh, uh, Evo's uh, cabinet ministers also resigned. Like all most of, of his cabinet resigned at the same time yeah. that Evo resigned. Yeah, all so it was okay. the, he, he resigned. Um, the vice president and, resigned. Well, the, he, the leader of the Senate resigned. Yeah. Like. Like basically the entire chain of command of who would take over if he resigned, they all resigned simultaneously. So it's effectively like there is a complete power vacuum in Bolivia because of this. Well, one of his cabinet ministers, and I forget exactly which it is, uh, came out and said, hey, the reason I'm resigning is because the opposition kidnapped my brother. By the way, could you please release my brother now? Like this wasn't done willingly this was all done under duress and there's video out there of the opposition ransacking yeah. Evo Morales's house uh, and then burning symbols of indigenous yep. resistance like if you have any question about who's going to be targeted in the fallout it's going to be the indigenous communities that are sitting on the rich reserves yeah and it's also has. worth pointing out that Evo Morales was like he's uh, he's in, he's an indigenous person like he is Everything first, first indigenous leader in exactly. South America, the first elected indigenous leader in and all of South America. socialist. So he literally is everything the CIA does not want to have happen, and he's been doing a damn good job. Like there, there was a uh, a referendum relating to his uh, ability to to run for a third term, and the the Supreme Court in Bolivia had basically come down and said that the that it. it that they sided with Eva Morales. Well, so the, the, he lost that. He, he lost the referendum, yeah. Well, he lost the referendum, and then this, then the Supreme Court came in and threw yes. out term limits, uh, which kind of meant that the, the referendum didn't really matter because term limits yes. didn't count anyway, so he was able to and run And he did win term. that election, like, pretty pretty handily. And so it's this is straight up a coup. Well, the, the question is, did he win enough to not force a runoff. And that was where the argument came was whether or not he won enough to not yeah. win again. Because the the number that he won, won was just at the 10% mark that he needed to stave and off. And he did also election. call the four uh, you know four new elections in an attempt to try to like quell this outpouring of uh, folks stepping out onto the streets wearing you know balaclavas and 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 ransacking stuff and just rioting. Um, but yeah, so finishing the quote yep. from, from Lee's post, uh, quote, the poor will suffer, the indigenous will suffer, Bolivia will suffer, and I guarantee some U.S. corporations are going to get access to some immensely profitable raw materials. That's all they care about, end quote. So yeah. And specifically, the raw materials that American corporations will get access to is the world's largest natural store yep. of lithium. And why would we care oh, about lithium? Because you need that material to build batteries, to build all of the fancy new like renewable energy stuff that we're talking about. And this is just kind of like when we talk about greenwashing yes. and like imperial 
uh, or eco-fascism. Like, this is exactly what we're talking about, where we're just going to go through another cycle where instead of extracting oil from the global south, we're going to be extracting rare earth minerals that we need to build the developed world while impoverishing the global south. And that's, you know, something we need to stop. Like, abolish the CIA yeah, exactly. yesterday. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a mess. <laughs> Anyways, let's uh, let's get back to American election results after that that detour down into Bolivia. But like, it matters, and it matters that a local elected candidate is yeah. talking about this stuff because these global issues are local when it comes down to it. You know, the federal government doesn't run without the complicity of the states, and the states don't run without the complicity of their local governments. And we need to be seeing all of these things talked about at every level of government, especially going into 2020. Like, we have a chance to really change some stuff. And we're seeing that across the nation, specifically in places like Kentucky, where a Trump-backed candidate <laughs> lost to Andy Bashir. Andy Bashir was the state's Democratic yep. attorney general. Uh, Bevin, the incumbent, is not conceding <laughs> yet. He is waiting for the results of a re-canvas to conclude. He is also like, the Republicans are basically arguing in this election like, yeah, we didn't win the vote, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't maintain <laughs> power. So get ready for that in 2020, because the last two GOP presidents lost the popular vote and still won the Electoral College, thus giving them the presidency. And we should probably keep an eye on that because uh, they never Wasn't do it the, good It was things. the head of the GOP uh, in your in moving- state came out and basically said that we should be implementing something like the Electoral College in all of these states. Like we should be making like a sub, like a state level Electoral College. Dr. Yeah, Kelly. For each state because she's like, well, the will of yeah. the people, when you look at the county maps, clearly the Republicans win. It's like you do realize that population density is a thing, right? Like she... A st- well, that was an astounding and, and they, series of tweets. It's it's so maddlingly stupid because like the the vast majority of Arizona is very empty and owned yeah. by the federal government. Like we're one of those western states where like ninety percent of our land is federal government land, uh, and it just so happens that the BLM doesn't do their job. So having federal government land doesn't mean anything because they've li- largely conceded local control to the ranchers and the farmers out here who are doing things like tapping our largest aquifer in oh, order fine. to grow cotton so that they can create cotton seeds so that they can feed them to cattle who are like just decimating the West. Um, You know, it's more and more of the manifest destiny where we're literally just taking indigenous resources and also kind of getting tribal governments to side with the extractors. And that's one of the problems is when you hollow out the economic like productivity of a population and then say, hey, the only thing you've got is this water and the only way for you to make a lot of money off of it is to sell it to ranchers. Well, suddenly you have the Gila Gila River. (laughs) Suddenly you have the Gila River Indian tribe selling their largest aquifer to ranchers. And it's like, but maybe we need that water for not cows later on. Like maybe we should be saving that water to actually feed people and deal with the huge population boom because Phoenix is now the fifth largest city in America and the fastest growing city in America again. And uh, it's really hot and dry here, meaning that there's not a lot of water. So I keep kind of looking at my city and being like, hey, in 2050, this is pretty much a dead city because we're out of water. And people are like, no, that won't happen. And you're like, you know, Johannesburg has run out of water. It's a thing. This does happen. (laughs) Large global cities. Yeah, and it's going to happen here and it's going to be bad. Uh, The last election I want to talk about is going to St. Louis, Missouri, 
where Rasheen Aldridge, a former leadership team member of Missouri, of Missouri Jobs with Justice, and he was very active in the Ferguson protests, and he served as a member of the Ferguson Commission and fought to raise the minimum wage, will be joining the Missouri State Legislature as a state representative for the 78th District. And that's also a really big win where we're seeing people who were active in protests, who are active in radical organizing, moving into positions of power, because we need those people in positions where they can vote, where they have a say on budget, where we're getting that radical entrance into electoral politics. It's got to be a dual power strategy, and it's got to be one that's putting those issues front and center. So that's sort of our truncated wrap-up of everything that that went went on around the nation on uh, November 5th. Uh, We're probably going to be seeing some really interesting stuff happening in Kentucky. up in San Francisco, there are people talking about trying to undo the election of Cheza already. Uh, I think my favorite oh, thing I've on. seen was somebody saying that, like, Bodine is also the name of a sourdough company, and so people just voted for the name of a bread company that they knew, which I, I, don't, even, I don't even know. Like, I, the Yimbies <laughs> have just <laughs> lost it up there. They're, cho- like, San Francisco Yimby backed uh, Dean Preston's opponent and, like, lost, and they have just flipped their shit over it. Um, Chezza winning has caused them to, like, absolutely lose their minds and, like, demand that we basically give Jeff Bezos uh, a Batman costume and let him beat up heroin addicts in the street to save the city. Um, also, the argument that San Francisco is the city in America with the largest organized crime problem, which I am just, I'm so baffled by so much. And so, and all of it, like it is just terrible. Uh, but I am definitely looking forward to March because I guess, you know, the acceleration as part of my brain is kind of excited to see what happens. Yeah. It's also worth pointing out that because you brought up Jeff Bezos, the Seattle, had some very interesting oh, election Oh, yes, results. I can't believe I skipped that one. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Kashama Sawant, who has been, you know, she was, uh, what, pro- progressive socialist, was it socialist alternative? I forget which party. Uh, I believe she was socialist alternative, yeah. Yeah, so, oh, it's e- yeah, either socialist alternative or PSL, I forget which, but yeah. Uh, she's been the openly socialist candidate on the uh, Seattle City Council for a little while now, and has really done an amazing job. And uh, Jeff Bezos jumped into this race in a really meaningful way, like dumping a bunch of money onto, uh, you know, onto these candidates that, that were running against a bunch of very strong progressives. And uh, it turns out that when, you know, on election night, it looked like uh, Swant was not going to necessarily retain her seat. Uh, and it looked like it was a pretty decent turnout for Bezos. But then as the election results continued to, you know, finalize and counting the, the ballots that came in late and everything else, uh, the tides, they turned. So, uh, yeah, so Kashama Swant is going to retain her seat. And overall, it's a supermajority now. One of the interesting things about that uh, is that the people who voted early, who sent in their absentee votes early, mm-hmm. who tend to be older and homeowners, they fell heavily for the Amazon-backed candidate. It was the late voters, the people who showed up at the polls, the people who turned their mail-in ballots the day of the election, who tend to be younger and not homeowners, they broke heavily, yeah. heavily for Sawant. <laughs> and that <laughs> is a really important thing. Like, 
when I talk to folks and they're like, I don't think knocking doors and turning out, no. you know, not likely voters is a good way to invest your time in oh, an election. We should be doing the Mark <laughs> Kelly strategy of trying to win over the soft center. It's like, no, no. there are more <laughs> non-voters out there than there are voters in most elections. Mm -hmm. Getting 10% of those non-voters to turn out flips your election. And it takes and a lot of work because like we've done a good job in this country of teaching people that your vote doesn't matter. Yeah, and this is so this is actually the exact same thing that happened in those races in San Francisco that we were just talking about. The early votes, like Boudin was uh, ahead barely in the first choice votes uh, from election, like what was coming out on election night. But then when you took the second choice votes and you tallied them up, he actually started to slip behind. But as they counted more votes later, the number of first choice ranked votes that he was winning kept going up as far as a percentage of the votes that were being counted. So each time that a new wave of results was reported, he was winning a bigger and bigger chunk of those first ranked choice votes to the point where he won. Like, this is exactly what you're talking about. Those late votes, those people who decide, oh, shit, there's an election. I need to go do this. The people that you talk to on the streets, the people that like, like I like to do this, where you get your mail-in ballot, you fill it out, and then you go in and you, you hand it in on election day. Those ballots that come in late are tending in California, at least, and apparently up in Seattle as well, to break heavily for the much more progressive candidates. So it matters. It matters so, so, so much. So get out there, get involved, knock on doors because this shit is important. Yep. All right. Let's move <sighs> on to our favorite investor utility topic. in the entire world. <laughs> we've, PG we've talked about this like every week for the last two months and it's going to just keep going. It's uh, almost like it's the largest utility in the nation that keeps burning down our effing state and killing people. It, it's it's yeah. almost like that's happening. Uh, like but yeah, so PG&E, <laughs> they, they turned down uh, the buyout offer from the county of San Francisco, city of San Francisco, however you want to phrase it, from Mayor London Breed. Uh, and now after the massive Kincaid fire, as well as like several other smaller fires that were started by PG&E equipment and the revelations that they've spent millions of dollars on lobbying and millions of dollars on bonuses while not doing infrastructure upgrades and maintenance like they were supposed to, yeah. uh, is now being pushed to uh, be turned into a co-op and might have some backing from Governor Newsom. It's kind of hard to tell with the Gavinator, though. He's he's always a little mealy-mouthed on this, um, but he doesn't seem completely opposed to it this time around. Yeah, so we all know that PG&E, which is, of course, our largest utility here in California, and I, I think that you were correct in stating that it is the largest in the country, um, they filed for bankruptcy in the face of the $30 billion or so in liabilities surrounding those lethal 2017 and 2018 fires. Uh, the California Public Utilities Commission will eventually be issuing the final approval of whatever reorganization plan comes out of the bankruptcy court. I believe technically the bankruptcy court has like final approval, but if CPUC doesn't approve the plan, then it still has to go through the bankruptcy court. It's a mess. Um, Governor Newsom has threatened uh, effectively a state takeover of the utility if the restructuring process doesn't move quickly enough, though he didn't actually lay out any kind of, you know, deadlines around that. So it's mm -hmm. kind of an empty threat, but who knows? Like you said, we it's hard to get a good read on what Newsom is thinking on this one. Um, but yeah, last Tuesday, a group of 22 mayors and county supervisors sent a letter to the California Public Utilities Commission and Newsom uh, as well, warning against the desire of quote-unquote Wall Street titans who were concerned only with a quote, 
short-term desire to maximize financial gain uh, regarding this consult- this restructuring. So those people are having a controlling interest in what the restructuring is, and it is, uh, shall we say, concerning for everyone who cares about not dying in a conflagration started by uh, failing uh, maintenance because pg and doesn't know how to do their job. So they also argue that... This matters for us in the Southland because it looks like SoCal Edison started one of the fires yeah. in the Southland. So let's not forget, like, we have LADWP, but they don't cover everyone in nope. L.A. County. Uh, SoCal Edison also delivers power, and they deliver power to Ventura County and San Bernardino County and Riverside County and a lot of the surrounding areas. And, like, we all know how well fire respects boundaries. Like, we all yeah. understand that fire knows what a county line is and will not cross that. Absolutely. Also, worth pointing out, SoCal Edison does have uh, lines that run across... a big chunk of LA County. And like they started one of the fires, uh, right up near, uh, Silmar this last, like uh, last month. And it was, you know, it was started by these lines that don't even deliver power to LA County. They just run across it. And yeah, so it's, it's a mess. Um, but in this letter, these, uh, County supervisors and mayors were also arguing that a co-op structure, uh, which we are big fans of, would be a better path forward for PG&E to become financially stable, uh, regain the public trust, and straighten out their operational struggles like, you know, prioritizing basic power line maintenance over the payouts of executives. Quoting yep. from the letter, quote, a cooperative financial structure will save ratepayers many billions of dollars in financing costs over this next decade. A customer-owned PG&E will better focus its scarce dollars on long-neglected maintenance, repairs, and capital upgrade, and mitigating some of the substantial upward pressure on rates, end quote. So the leader of this group of elected officials is San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo. He was joined by the mayors of several large cities, including Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff, Sacramento Mayor Darrell Steinberg, who we've spoken about regarding the uh, Blue Ribbon or whatever the hell it's called now, uh, panel on homelessness, uh, along with Mr. Mark Ridley-Thomas, our county supervisor down here in L.A. But, you know, Ridley-Thomas is not on this letter. Sorry for distracting things. Uh, Stockton Mayor also signed on Michael Tubbs, who is awesome. Uh, And then Santa Cruz Mayor Martine Watkins. And uh, it does make sense that our mayor, one-time presidential hopeful Eric Garcetti, didn't sign on as PG&E doesn't really have anything to do with the city or county of Los Angeles. Additionally, the leaders of five county board of supervisors, San Mateo, Santa Cruz, Marin, Yolo, and San Benito counties have also signed on. Also, I always think that like Yolo County is probably the most exciting place in California, (laughs) even though it's not. I don't know, man. I drove through Inyo County on the way over uh, between here and Tahoe, and yeah, it's, it's in your county. Yeah, no, but it, it's also <laughs> worth you know pointing out that uh, several representatives in the state house from Southern California take huge amounts of money from PG&E. Uh, 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 Miguel yes. Santiago leaps to mind. He's taken like $35,000 from them in the last couple of election cycles. Also, the Gavinator himself in his last two election ty- cycles has taken more than $70,000 from PG&E. Um, no word on him returning that money yet, uh, but it does kind of make you question how committed a lot of the state government would be to actually dismantling PG&E and also how committed the investors and, and board of directors are to allowing that to happen, which is why we really need like an activist state government that's going to swing the 
eminent domain hammer and just make that happen because we can't yes. keep letting private interests put us in danger and then saying, no, but our profits override your right to not burn to death. And that keeps happening. Like, it's really, you know, the, the town of paradise is just being rebuilt now. There's a new Netflix documentary out on it, which I have not caught yet. I am planning to in the, in the, the near future. But at this point, there have been 450 building permits issued in paradise, but only 11 houses are being framed. So people aren't moving back to these cities and it's becoming a real problem, you know, because they have no place to go. We still have tens of thousands of people who are displaced effectively and they're moving into other cities that aren't able to, you know, take on 50,000 more people overnight. Like that's something that a state government needs to work its way up to and reestablish a tax base. And those people need jobs and all of that fun stuff. And we just don't have that. Like climate refugees exist in California and we just kind of keep forgetting about that. And it's, it's outside of like the occasional documentary or like sob story on NPR we're not really getting a good look at how this is affecting people's lives and what we're going to do about it. You know, the state of California doesn't have an emergency fund for climate refugees. Once your once your house or your city burns down, uh, it basically becomes a fight between you and the insurance company, and the insurance companies are going to do everything they can to not pay out. <sighs> All right. Yeah, it's 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 so deeply depressing, and as we've mentioned so many times, and, and you just said right now, like. We literally have climate refugees here in the state of California, and we do not have a plan for how to deal with this. And that is just completely unacceptable. And we need our elected officials to step up and do something about it. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about something that our elected officials stepped up to do something about, which is Airbnb. Uh, we actually mm-hmm. at Ground Game, I want to flag this before we get into the meat of this story. Uh, Mitch O'Farrell is trying to gut some of the uh, protections for renters, specifically in Hollywood, around short-term rentals. Uh, if you want to go check out the cancel file, cancel file. If you want to go check out the council file, and just so everyone knows, like Mitch O'Farrell is permanently in our cancel file. But you can go check out Council File 18-1245 to see what he's proposing as far as allowing rent control departments to be used for short-term rentals, which is something that would be absolutely destructive, especially in a neighborhood like Hollywood that is relying on those protections to not have our community absolutely eviscerated by illegal hotels. This is just, that is so absurd on every possible level because we literally just spent the last like three years trying to hammer out the details of this new Airbnb regulation for the city of Los Angeles. And he's trying to go and create carve outs that are like, yeah, well, we spent all that time doing all that stuff and we all agreed to do it. But ah, Hollywood is special because fuck the poor. Like what the fuck? If developers gave me $13 million in behested payments that I get to use as a slush fund to ensure my career after city council, I too would also be a terrible human being probably. So, you know, I Mm. I don't think Mitch is, you know, personally monstrous, but I think he has a lot of incentives uh, Mm. to be absolutely (laughs) ghoulish uh, in, in the way that he's operating and not protecting the city of LA and specifically the neighborhood of Hollywood. Uh, And let's not forget the community development plan for Hollywood is coming back up. Like get involved with that. If you want to make sure that we're building affordable and not building more luxury condos and more hotels, uh, because like, you know, people need places to live. We're not all tourists in our own city, but let's talk about something that Airbnb has finally done, uh, which also raises some questions about how they'll enforce it, but they're apparently banning house parties after a very tragic incident. 
Yeah, so there was a shooting uh, at a Halloween party uh, last week where there was a, a house that was rented on Airbnb in, uh, I think it was Orlinda, California. And yeah. uh, there's following this tragic shooting, Airbnb has announced that it will be banning these so-called party houses on its platform. Again, uh, we don't really know exactly what they plan to do as far as enforcement is concerned, but, well, they're saying they're going to do something about it. Well, also one thing I want to one one thing I want to point out is like this was a mass shooting that involved five yep. people getting shot, and it yep. barely made national news. Like the shooting itself barely made the news, but Airbnb announcing that they're banning party houses made international news. So yes, that's where we are in America right now. Well, yep, I yeah. Quoting from reporting of, from the BBC, quote, the house was reportedly booked under a pretense for a small group before being publicized on Instagram as the venue for a Halloween party, which eventually drew a crowd of more than 100 people. The host did not authorize the party, Airbnb said. Um, CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, said in a tweet that the company would be taking steps to, quote, combat unauthorized parties and get rid of abusive host and guest conduct. We must do better, and we will. This is unacceptable, end quote. I mean, uh, that's, it's, it's so questionable to me what their commitment is as a company to actually do that, because I have friends who... Um, like own a condo that they rent and like their renter decided to sublet it as a short-term rental. And then when the, when my friend was like, Hey, I don't want you subletting the space, you know, under Airbnb, you can't do that. Airbnb made it impossible to cancel the listing. Like Airbnb doesn't follow their own That's rules absurd. because they are that desperate to book the revenue. And so we've absurd. seen this time and again. There was also a great story in Vice that I'll put in the uh, the sources about a woman who stumbled onto a basically massive fraudulent operation that spans at least eight major cities in America oh, yeah. where where hosts are offering spaces and then at the last minute they're like, oh, hey, you know what, that space isn't available. Why don't you take this other one? And basically gaming the system so that Airbnb continues to fund their fraud. And Airbnb has known about this for a while, but it wasn't until Vice got involved and made it like a trending story on Twitter that Airbnb finally suspended these fraudulent operators after they'd been on the platform for years. Like Airbnb only cares about the revenue. They do not care about what they're doing to our neighborhoods. And we can see this in the fact that like when Airbnb moves into a neighborhood, rents jump. Yes, they do. So it's worth noting that Airbnb is responsible, according to a study that came out of USC, for 20% of rent, rent increases where it operates. I'm going to just quote from the, uh, the USC, news.usc.edu or whatever the URL, we'll put it in the sources, uh, says on this, quote, overall, Airbnb probably contributes about one-fifth of the average annual increase in U.S. rents and about one-seventh of the average annual increase in U.S. housing prices. Like, this is a non-trivial thing. They are driving unaffordability across the entire country, but in the areas, specifically areas that are, are you know, known as tourist destinations, like in Los Angeles and in any other place where people like to come and visit, you see the kind of predatory nature of these illegal hotel operations that are being, you know, facilitated by Airbnb all over the place. And it is I mean, specifically like places in Venice, uh, places in Santa Monica, places in Hollywood, there are tons of illegal Airbnb operations that have just decimated our affordable housing stock. Landlords that, you know, they kick people out because they know that even if they do get caught, which is 
unlikely. The a level yep. of fine that they're going to be facing for doing this abhorrent behavior of kicking these people that are long-term tenants out and changing rent-stabilized buildings into illegal hotels, they get slapped on the wrist with like a little, very, very minor fine and nothing happens. Nothing happens. If you own an RSO building and you evict your tenants to run it as an illegal Airbnb, you should lose your building and the city should take it and turn it into public fucking housing. Sorry. Yes. You played the game. You broke all the rules as an asshole. You lose. You lose big. Take it. Ah. I think it also says a lot that cities keep saying, hey, we need to bring in more tourists to shore up our financial base, our economic base for the city. And these are large cities that have a lot of people working there, have a lot of people living there. And it says a lot when they're like, we can't afford to run our city just on the economic productivity of the millions of people that live here. Like Mm -hmm. that says a lot about how much people are making as far as wages, how much they're able to spend as yep. far as discretionary yep. income and where the money's going because the money's not going into the pockets of consumers. The money's going into the VC folks who back places like Airbnb and the international developers who build luxury hotels and luxury condos. And that is probably one of the cyclical things that is going to come back to bite us in the next year or two as this bubble that we're in on a a macro level gets ready to pop. Like if you want to see a leading indicator, look at, uh, 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 look at subprime car rentals and subprime, sorry, not car rentals, subprime car leases and Mm -hmm. used car sales. And that is a leading indicator because when all of the, the speculative capital fled the housing market, it jumped into the subprime auto market. And now that that bubble is popping, it tells you that people are so squeezed, they don't have the money to afford assets that they need to live. And at some point, charging people more for an asset while paying them the same just doesn't work out. The basic arithmetic just falls apart. And that's really the end of the cycle we're getting to. And the yeah. question is going to become, are these sort of moves towards more quantitative easing and uh, injecting more capital into the banks so that they can t- continue to prop up stock prices really going to do anything for the average consumer. And if you're looking at Chile, if you're looking at Bolivia, if you're looking at Spain, if you're looking at the other places in the globe where massive protests are happening, uh, Haiti, it also comes to mind. That's not happening. And like, we're going to be seeing that I think especially after Brexit finally happens, really hitting the developed world (laughs) in a way that people are not prepared for. Like a lot of dirty laundry is going to get aired and a lot of people are going to be very unhappy about it. So, you know, Airbnb is not the cause of everything bad, but they're definitely the symptom of a very distended macro market and one that like we're not doing enough to rein in. Like honestly, home sharing in and of itself isn't like an evil thing, but allowing that to be uh, owned and run solely for the benefit of like a couple of tech entrepreneurs is a really, really bad thing. Oh yeah. Um, On this same note, let's talk about what LA is doing to protect renters because there's been some really good stuff that has happened recently in in LA in terms of rent freezes and affordable housing, uh, and then some not great stuff with our council president, Herb Wesson, and his son, Uh, but we'll get to that one at the bottom. So let's start off talking about this rent freeze, which came about because of SB 1482, which is the the statewide rent control bill, and uh, that attorney, Dennis Block, who was like, hey, if you've got a rent control building or you just have a building in general, jack your rent up all the way, evict all of your tenants, make sure you get all of your money now. Uh, and fortunately, city council moved pretty quick to cut back against that. 
Yeah, so city council, we we talked about this previously. They put a moratorium in place in the city of Los Angeles on all evictions uh, leading up to the introduction of 1482 because as Block had told everybody, hey, look, there's a loophole. If you evict them before 1482 comes into effect on January 1st, 2020, you can get away with it and charge massively increased rates, uh, which will then protect your nest egg from having any kind of thing to do with uh, affordable housing protection. So uh, he told everyone to do that. All the landlords, not all, but like tons of landlords uh, in L.A., took his advice and immediately started handing out 60-day eviction notices. So the city council jumped in and made a moratorium on that. But, of course, I'm, I'm hearing things through, like, Latu, that the uh, that landlords are, are still lying to their tenants and being like, yeah, no, 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 no. Our 60-day eviction notice uh, still counts because, you know, that, that, that protection, like, we issued it before the city put the moratorium in place, so therefore you are going to get evicted. And it's like, well, actually, the moratorium says that that's not the case, but whatever. Uh, asshole landlord's going to asshole. You even hear stand, uh, stuff like um, coming from websites like expressevictions.com, which oh, one of the most poorly put together sites I've ever seen. Like it is eye bleedingly ugly. Um, <laughs> but even beyond that, it is like terribly Deeply evil. Malicious. But they have yeah. like a bunch of form letters that you can print out as a landlord saying that your tenants owe things like an RSO tax, like you owe an extra tax for la- for living in a rent controlled building. And which, because you haven't been paying your RSO tax, you're you now won't. up for eviction. So not only do we see like landlords coming up with stupid ideas on their own we actually see a whole like legal industry that is telling them to lie and providing them with the materials they need to lie so there's going to be a lot of shenanigans and it seems to me like if you're a landlord who's going to go through that much trouble maybe just get out of the business and like give your building to the city for public housing in case you can uh, in in case you you needed the spoiler alert here folks we're going to be talking a lot about the need for public housing um because like (laughs) that's one way we check back against the sort of like stupid private behavior exactly so getting back to like the other half of the equation which is these massive rent increases that are being pushed in the lead up to the implementation of 1482 um On October 30th, Jenna Chandler from Curbed wrote that, quote, tenants who earn less than the area's median income and whose rent is hiked by more than 9% will be eligible for financial assistance under a, quote unquote, emergency renters relief program approved unanimously by the Los Angeles City Council today. Uh, So this program is going to be running through the end of the year, and it is available for tenants who earn up to 80% of the area median income, which for a single earner is uh, $58,450. And for dual-income households, it's $66,800. Through this program, the city will be covering the rental increases above that 8 or 9% threshold, paying those subsidies (sighs) directly to the landlords. So this seems... Yeah, so it is a clear win for bad-faith landlords. It will protect tenants to a degree, but the landlords are basically going to get to just milk this system, and it doesn't do anything to disincentivize them jacking these rents up because they get paid. Even if it's not coming from the tenants, they still get paid. And then after this program ends, which it will do at the end of the year, they get to keep those rent increases in place. And you know, then 1482 comes into effect, but at the same time, like the tenants are still being you know hit with these increases in rents and it's it it's that increase is permanent it doesn't go away so the city yep. is is it's a very very short term like half-assed attempt 
at trying to protect renters and it is appreciated because it will do something it will it will be helpful but it is you know there's still a lot of red tape for people to jump through and at the end of the day the landlords are still the ones that get to make all the profit from it so yep <sighs> yep Organize your building. Organize uh, your building. Yes. Organize your building. Even Make if you like your landlord, organize your building. <laughs> it's you know one. Of the, I was I was having a discussion with uh, one of my Sunrise Phoenix organizers, and I was kind of you know we were a little drunk, uh, having a couple of beers after canvassing, and he was talking about like some of the crap his landlord's given him, and he was like, yeah, you know she's not that bad. I'm like, but here's the thing. <laughs> is by the time things do get bad, it's too late to organize. Yes. And if your landlord really is as nice a person as you think she is, then she won't have any problem putting that stuff in a contract with a tenants union. Yeah. Like when landlords and bosses balk at the idea of putting something in a contract and making it an actual reality versus like kind of a soft reality of, oh, don't worry about your bonuses. You'll just always get them. We promise. Mm -hmm. That tells you something about their intentions and like why you need that protection because at the end of the day, they have more power than you do and you can counterbalance that power with a tenant union. You can counter that balance with a labor union. Like those things that you see as benefits and like good faith efforts by the people above you, asking them to put it in a contract shouldn't be something that threatens your life or your home, you know? Yeah. That's not the way it works with them, where you're like, yeah, I get the whole, like, rent in the lease thing, but, you know, just trust me to pay rent. I'm not going to sign the lease. Your landlord wouldn't trust you to do that. So maybe just have that same clear-eyed vision going into those kind of negotiations in the future and understand, like, even if you live in a building that's only got, like, 10 units in it, the 10 of y'all should be friends and the 10 of y'all should look out for each other. And if your landlord tries to shank one of you, you're all going to be there saying, no, you can't do that yeah. because that's what you want from the people who live in your building. So class consciousness let's and talk solidarity, y'all. Yes, it's good. Solidarity, very, very good. And people who try mm -hmm. and tell you it's bad do not have your best interests in mind. Absolutely. Let's talk about this affordable housing push. So uh, SCAG, which is a terribly named uh, organization <laughs> that does kind of good good things, yeah, they do. Uh, which is the Southern California Association <laughs> of Government. But they basically decide like how many units need to be built in the future in order to accommodate like predictions for population growth and how much those units should cost and all of that fun stuff. They got together and it seems like for the first time ever are really committed to affordable housing. Yeah, it's it's actually very good. Like they're they're really pushing for an increase in housing, um, specifically actually along the coastal portions of the state, rather than like the inland development that we've been seeing popping up time and time again. Where you know that's that's where everybody was trying to do this massive you know suburban and exurban growth um, early in early on in the two thousands before the massive housing bubble, and then you saw all those basically just abandoned properties out in the uh, the high desert suburbs. Um, but yeah, quoting from this motion that was introduced by Herb Wesson uh, back last week, quote, for the fifth revision of Los Angeles County's housing element, the Southern California Association of Governments allocated 82,002 homes to the city of Los Angeles. 57% of the homes that are to be built over the fifth housing element cycle, which is 2014 to 2021, are to be affordable to those which fall under the, new, under the very low, low or moderate income level, and 43% are to be affordable to those who fall under the above moderate income level. Uh, by the end of 2018, the city had met 210% of its RENA allocation for above moderate income households, but only 20% uh, for very low and or low income households and just 3% for moderate income households. 
In the city of Los Angeles, more than 90% of the homes permitted since 2014 are for households earning 120% or more of AMI. So that's a lot of numbers and a lot of percentages and statistics and everything else that basically all comes down to the something that tenants organizers have been saying for quite some time. All of the new development that's been going on in Los Angeles and the entire state basically is all going toward the top echelons of earners in this state, in these counties and in this, in these cities, the people that are getting housing built for them are the ones who can afford to live just about wherever the hell they want. And that's where the Yimby arguments fall the fuck apart. When you just let the market build housing, it builds it for the rich because that's where they can make the most profit. If you do not mandate that the housing that is being built be affordable, the markets won't build it because that's not where they make their money. So all of this Yimby trickle-down housing bullshit is exactly that. It is just a house of cards that will tumble and is tumbling because look at these statistics. We know that the only housing that's getting built is for the rich. And they and then, do to, to put the to put this in stark relief in Council District Four, which is currently held by David Ryu, we see a breakdown of seven percent affordable housing versus ninety three percent luxury developments. Like <sighs> you understand who the housing is being built for, and we also see you know to kind of stretch this out to a national level in New York, fifty percent of the luxury condos that have been built in the last decade are uninhabited right now. Yeah, that's why. Why? Why are there thousands of units that don't have people living in them when you have a city with thousands of people who are basically homeless like this money? We keep seeing this. uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But we keep seeing the same displacement happening over and over again. And they're like, oh, just build more of the luxury stuff, even though no one can afford to live in it. Yeah. Ah. So now that we've gone through the details of like why this is a problem and like what the stark realities of the fact that Los Angeles developers don't give a shit about poor people, the motion that was introduced by Herb Wesson, which is undeniably a good thing, concludes with this resolution that the L.A. City Council, quote, restrict the use of city owned land identified for housing purposes to housing development that is 100 percent affordable with an effective start date of January 1st, 2020. And that the city administrative officer notify the Department of City Planning, Housing, and Community Investment Department and all other relevant departments of the restriction, end quote. So this is so good and makes me so happy to see because we've been saying this for quite some time. Like if the city is going to be using its property to be, you know, turned into housing, it should be affordable housing because that's the city has leverage. The city owns the property. They can dictate what gets built. Don't just sell it off as like a land grab for these developers. It is bullshit that we've let it go on for this long. And they should really like I I would love to see uh, L.A. Metro get involved in the same thing because they are one of the largest landlords in Southern California. And if they went the same route and said 100 percent of their property that is used for housing would be affordable, I I would be just ecstatic. Um, So the council file for this motion is the number is 19 dash. One three six two. You can follow the progress of this proposal by going to uh, cityclerk.lacity.org, where you'd also be able to submit public comments on the motion. Uh, and we're going to be providing a link to that motion as well as to the one that was previously mentioned uh, in the show notes at the end of all this. So uh, get involved, uh, tell them what you think about it, and uh, definitely support this one and 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 show up when they do have discussions. 
So at least one person in the city of Los Angeles has figured out how to ensure <laughs> affordable rent. Uh, it, coincidentally, <laughs> he's the son of Herb Wesson, uh, the city council president, and it's kind of hard at this point, but there may or may not be some pay-to-play stuff going on here where Herb Wesson's son was offered very cheap rent for many, many years uh, in exchange for Herb uh, acting favorably towards developments that his son's landlord might want to build in the city. So let's dig into this based largely on reporting from the LA Times. Yeah, so I'm just going to go ahead and quote straight from them because they've done a very good job on this. Uh, Quote, Los Angeles City Council President Herb Wesson's son received preferential treatment on his rent for years at an LA apartment building while his father helped the building's executives win approval of a controversial high-rise, according to interviews and records reviewed by the Times. Wesson helped shepherd the 27-story Koreatown residential tower through the city's review process amid opposition from city staff and the planning commission. During the same period, his son was living in a building owned by Rosewood Corp. Uh, Corporation, a company headed by tower developer Michael Ham- Hackham and one of his relatives, end quote. So uh, Herb's son, uh, who's 43 years old and his name is Herb Wesson III, uh, <laughs> went more than five years without receiving a rent increase in this building uh, in question, uh, while his neighbors faced annual rent increases just like the vast majority of Angelino renters. And the, in this article, people are basically saying, like, look, this own, the owners of this building, Rosewood, they were coming and nickel and diming these, these tenants for every possible increase they could get for the entire time that they were there. But for the five years that Herb Wesson III was living in this building, they did not have any kind of a rental increase for him. Uh, and it's actually noted that he was registered to vote from this address, and that is where uh, he undeniably was maintaining his residence and actively participating in uh, local government by doing that voting. So this this is where he yeah. lived, and it is uh, pretty screwed up because what's really astounding with this was that Herb III went so far as to discuss in a private conversation with one of his neighbors that the fact that he was receiving this kickback was a result of, quote, business his father was doing with the owners of the building, end quote. So... Uh, that is just totally damning. So um, another former tenant who was familiar with the rental discount situation told the LA Times that, quote, it didn't sit well with me, but I didn't know what I could do about it, end quote. This tenant asked to remain anonymous when they were talking with reporters out of concerns for, of retaliation from the landlord. This is what we're talking about. When you organize, yep. they can't retaliate. But if you don't organize, you can get screwed. You can get evicted and landlords are will find a way to make your life hell. So uh, the tricky thing with all of this comes down to whether or not this was something that Herb Wesson, uh, the second, our city council president, was uh, actively involved with, I guess. It's going to come down to, like, did he know and arrange for this or was it just like something that they did without his awareness it's it's uh it's a mess but loyola law school professor jessica levinson who served on la's ethics commission from 2013 to 2018 told the la times that any investigation into the rental arrangement would come down to whether or not the council president directly worked with the developer of the koreatown tower to secure some kind of a deal for his son so again it's 
did he know about it? And I mean, obviously. Well, and also not only did he know about it, but was there an explicit quid pro quo, yes. which very much <laughs> follows the kind of reasoning of the Roberts court when they basically eviscerated campaign finance law by saying, hey, we can't see lobbying efforts and campaign donations as explicit quid pro quos unless like they, oh, they directly say, hey, we're going to fund your campaign provided yep. you do this thing. Yep. As though that's how business is ever done on any level. I, it's it's absolutely maddening that you know you could be arrested by the cops for doing something unintentional, but we can't hold our city leaders to the same standard. That in order for a council president to be seen of wrongdoing, he has to actually have written down on a piece of paper hey and guys, said, "I am going to do crimes on your behalf." <laughs> and like anything short of that is just, oh man, we can't tell. It's just like a logical chain of events where like he was given preferential treatment for one thing and then in return gave preferential treatment to those same people. But because they didn't say explicitly that's what they were doing, well, we just, we, we can't prove wrongdoing. It's so freaking maddening. And also I kind of hope like, not that I'm ever in favor of anyone paying more rent, but like, I hope Herb the Third, like, I hope his rent finally went up. Like, I really hope that, like, that happened, but I feel like it probably didn't. Well, he moved out of that 450-square-foot uh, studio, uh, I think it was in 2017. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 uh, it's entirely possible that he's receiving another kickback someplace else because he is Herb the Third, son of city council president. Maybe they were like, because we've kept the rent so low on this one, we'll just, you know, keep it low for the next tenant. Like, uh, maybe nope. that was the good thing. <laughs> That's not what happened at all. It went straight back to market rates. <sighs> anyway, yeah. Of course it did. It's a yeah. mess. It's a mess. Follow along at the LA Times. They're doing good work. Yeah, no, very much so. The local reporting at the LA Times has been really good, uh, despite the fact that they still do not have a downtown LA bureau. Uh, I really do hope nope. that is something that they fix very but they soon. They have a union contract, and that is awesome. <laughs> yes. Uh, so let's let's move on to our last story of the week, uh, Aliso Canyon, uh, which is obviously a massive gas storage facility that exists at the northern end of the valley here in L.A. County. Uh, is stores several billion cubic feet of natural gas for really no good reason at this point. Like the, the facility is not back up online, but is still not shut down. It exists in a weird kind of limbo where we're not really injecting new gas into it. There are There is the ability to like draw down some of the gas that's in it, but it's also just like a gigantic mountain. It also caught on fire during the Saddle Ridge fire uh, and unexplained dirt fires were just kind of brushed off by SoCal Gas and the other people who store their explosive natural gas there. Uh, but so last week there was a big town hall where a doctor who lives in the area and has been studying the effects of the methane leak from 2014 has been talking about like what he's found. So let's dig into this stuff because a lot of it's pretty dark. Like a lot of it's like stuff that we know from canvassing up there and talking to residents, but stuff that seems even more dire than, than I think I realized. Yeah. So last week, Je Dr. Jeffrey Nordella presented his findings about the chemicals that Porter, Ra Porter Ranch residents had been inhaling during and after the massive leak at the Aliso Canyon Natural Gas Storage Facility. This leak was, as we've mentioned before, the single largest natural gas leak in U.S. history. During the presentation, Nordella said, quote, instead of receiving proper pure scientific due diligence, followed by full disclosure to you and the people, you have received concealment, deception, and fraud, end quote. So the introductory slide from his presentation included the, the an absolutely astounding fact that really puts the entire situation into perspective. Uh, on October 23rd, I'm quoting from the slide here, 
2015 through February 18th, 2016, so it did go on for quite some time, approximately 110,000 metric tons of polytoxins were emitted from the Southern California gas Aliso Canyon SS25 well from approximately 8,000 feet under the ground and under extreme pressures. It created a plume of toxic chemicals that showered down on potentially hundreds of thousands of people for 16 weeks. The Aliso Canyon blowout generated 220 times more by volume than the Deepwater Horizon oil release in the Gulf of Mexico, yet it was not visible to the human eye. However, using infrared camera technology like they show in the illustration below, it illustrates how close the largest natural gas and chemical disaster in the nation's history is to an innocent community. Why the lack of attention? That's a great question, Dr. Nordella. It is. Um, so we're, we'll go ahead. I think actually we should use that. Uh, that image should be the cover art for this. I, week. I was um, just thinking that. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it's it's terrifying. And I actually remember seeing um, I think it was when AOC went to Denver. Uh, she showed with uh, one of her Instagram stories, which are awesome, uh, how you can see these active leaks of emissions from oil wells using these infrared cameras because they're seeing the same thing happening with all sorts of oil wells that are very close to residential properties uh, all around Colorado. So like this is not just an issue for us, but we got hit with it the hardest here. In, One in thing I'm going County. to, and I'm going to put this in the sources, is uh, NASA just concluded a bunch of flyovers of the state of California looking for methane super emitters and found mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the vast majority of emissions in the state of California are caused by a minority of super emitters. Uh, Aliso Canyon is one of these super emitters. There's also a bunch of other industrial facilities Fun. and refineries that count as super emitters. Uh, the state of California, you know, to be fair, has a lot of natural gas and oil underneath it. Like, there are parts of L.A. County where you can go hiking, and along the trail, they're like, hey, you know, oil here naturally just seeps out of the ground, and, like, you can just pull white oil mm -hmm. out of the ground. It's one reason why settlers and other people, like you know, decided to plant their stakes in those areas because, like, suddenly you had all the kerosene you needed um, and all the white oil you needed to run your lamps at night and do other stuff like that. And so California sits on these huge reserves. And, like, you know, off of the, the Santa Cruz coast, I want to say, we see way more leakage on a yearly year, uh, on an annual basis, uh, than we saw even during the... Uh, um, Deep Horizons leak over in the Gulf of Mexico. And that's just naturally occurring oil that just kind of like spills out. The difference between us and the Gulf of Mexico is that our ecosystem is used to that because it's been happening for a long while. There's, you know, it, the life around there, the biodiversity around there has evolved in a different way and is used to that kind of like input mm -hmm. of oil. And like, we're going to see methane leaking out of the ground in certain parts of LA, or sorry, in certain parts of California, but not in these concentrated industrial applications that we're now seeing creating these, these super emitters. And this NASA map, like, you can kind of play around with it and kind of like zoom in on different parts of the state, but it's really scary. And you see the super emitters all clustered around areas of uh, large industrial development, and a lot of them sitting very near residential uh, developments, or near schools and homes, and also like... That kind of air pollution doesn't respect boundaries, you know, it, no, it, it gets spread up, especially when it gets into the upper atmosphere and becomes like a very concentrated greenhouse gas, then it affects everyone on the planet, not just the yep. small neighborhood where it's initially being emitted. But spe specifically for those small communities with that, or not just necessarily small communities, but for those communities that are directly impacted by things like that, like this uh, community in Porter Ranch, 
one of the specific pollutants that is so incredibly damaging is benzene. And there is no level like lead, there is no level of benzene that is safe for you to be exposed to. And as we've discussed before, the people who live in these communities around Porter Ranch and Aliso Canyon are having to go and get their benzene levels checked all the time now, because that is just the reality that they have to live with because Aliso Canyon just dumped tons of benzene on everyone around. So there was when uh, I was out canvassing uh, there, uh, I remember like I kept seeing cars that looked like they had pollen on them and it was like this kind of orangey stuff. And I kind of like, you know, after seeing it on a bunch of cars in this neighborhood, I finally asked one of the guys who opened the door. I was like, Hey, by the way, what tree is putting out that orange pollen? And he's like, Oh, that's, that's not pollen. It's fallout from Aliso Canyon. Like that's just very toxic chemicals that get condensed in the air at night and then get pulled down by the dew and condense on your car. And if you don't clean it off soon enough, it's going to eat away at your car's paint. And, uh, Yeah, this poor guy still lives in the neighborhood and gets his benzene levels checked like every six weeks because that's now something you have to do when you have a massive gas storage facility literally across the road from you. You know, it was maybe 100 yards between him and the entrance to Aliso Canyon. Um, That's terrifying. Yeah, and so that's, that's just America now. Hooray! So the L.A. County Public Health Department's chief scientist, Dr. Paul Simon, uh, attended this meeting and had this to say after the fact. Quote, there was this unintended, unintended effect that's been very, very damaging and counterproductive and has resulted in a deterioration, really, in the level of trust in our department. And so we're certainly very sorry about that. End quote. Thank you, uh, Dr. Simon. Uh, Simon also said that the county has sued SoCal Gas and negotiated a settlement that will, in part, contribute $25 million for a study of the long-term health effects of the gas blowout. Got news for you. It's going to cost a hell of a lot more than that. Like, this is incredibly damaging. The healthcare costs alone associated with this, uh, the fact that people are honestly, a lot of these properties should not, are not suitable for human habitation at this point because of the concentration of pollutants. Like, this is a huge, huge problem, and $25 million from SoCal Gas ain't gonna cover it. We need to shut this facility down. We need to have shut it down years ago. It lies on a fault line. It is so incredibly susceptible to all of these natural disasters. We saw the fires that burned through there, like we mentioned before. There were literally just pockets of soil that were just burning because of reasons. Uh, and it's, you know, it's so incredibly dangerous. And if we get hit with an earthquake that hits that fault line, this gas is just pumped into these chambers underground where there used to be oil, there used to be other gas that was, you know, extracted. And now they just use those same containment, uh, those same uh, pockets as a way of containing the oil. But if now that they've increased the pressure and they've pumped it all down there, as soon as you get hit with just the right earthquake, stuff will just start to leak. And then if it comes out through an earthquake, there's nothing that they can do like this, this blowout was caused because they just failed to perform proper maintenance. And so the actual physical mechanism that was keeping the gas in place broke and just was spewing gas. If something happens with an earthquake, we don't have a solution. All of that gas can just escape. And, and what do we do then? Right? Shut it down. Shut it down now. Yes. This is so depressing. And it, it so looks like the, so the, 
it looks like SoCal Gas uh, will not be shutting it down anytime soon. They still, you know, are yeah. telling people that, oh, we need it and like we need this excess capacity, especially when natural gas demand spikes. Um, not that it gets all that cold in Southern California. Um, and it, currently, like none of the gas that's in the mountain is being used for consumer uses. I think some of it's being used for industrial uses when they need it, which is really what the kind of big lie here is. It's not consumers that are being helped by this. It's large industry. Right. But I guess they're only going to put like $25 million towards the study else. of long-term health effects. Uh, nothing's really being said about them paying for the health effects that they discover or finding out that like large amounts of carcinogen being spilled into a neighborhood are going to uh, result in more cancer and that they're going to pay for the cancer that they cause. But, you know, they'll at least study it. You know, we'll, we'll know in the future, like, hey, they were responsible for this, but they'll probably never be held to account for taking care of that or helping the people that have been directly and actively harmed by this. So, uh, you know, it's good that we're getting more info, but it's it. also really, you know, really um, enraging that we're not seeing any yeah. actual movement towards a solution. So let's uh, let's move on to our pickups. Um, I guess you know up at the up at the top, uh, one thing to flag for you all that's going down. If you're tired of dying of climate change and you would rather die of laughter, uh, Sunrise <laughs> LA has just the event for you on November 22nd. There's going to be a comedy showcase at the Upright Citizens Brigade uh, on Sunset. It's going to be from eight to nine thirty. Really, really good list of comedians. It uh, should be a lot of fun. Also, just a really great crowd. You can buy your tickets on Eventbrite. Also going to have the link in the description for you, but uh, go check it out. And, uh, you know, it, like, as Camus said, like, absurdity is the first rule. So, like, if we're all going to die in a capitalist dystopia, we might as well be able to make fun of it. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, what it's, you know, it's either that or crippling depression and then, you know, just accepting this fate. And, uh, no, don't do that. Rise up, fight. This is the only way we can change it. Get angry, but also be able to laugh about it because otherwise it's really bad. Um, also, uh, speaking of really bad things, Black Lives Matter is going to be holding their weekly vigil again on Wednesday uh, at 211 West Temple downtown as usual. The, visual, the vigil, as always, starts at 4 and runs until 6. Come on out. It's in front of the Hall of Justice, uh, and it is just an incredibly powerful experience that I cannot recommend highly enough. Um, as always, the Los Angeles Tenants Union is also going to be having a number of meetings this week. Uh, this evening, as we're recording this on Monday morning, they're going to be having a meeting of the Hollywood local from 7 to 9 at 6500 Sunset Boulevard. Uh, there is going to be a, the Northeast local meeting happening on Wednesday the 13th from 7 to 9 at the Avenue 50 Studios, as always. Address there is 131 North Avenue 50, 90042. Uh, then the, the North Hollywood local is also going to be meeting on the 14th. That's this Thursday from 630 to 9 at 5730 Cahuenga Boulevard. Uh, and then there's also the South LA local happening uh, from 630 to 9 on the same night uh, at the Southern California Library, 6120 South Vermont Avenue, 90044. And the East Side local happening from 630 to 830 the same evening at 346 South Gless Street, 90033. You can find all this at latenantsunion.org slash en slash calendar um, for more details. And of course, Ground Game will be meeting on Thursdays as usual from 7.30 till 9 at 5617 Hollywood Boulevard. Come on out, say hi, it's fun, get plugged in, get organizing, and do the thing. Like, come join us. Trust us. We're fun. It's great. <laughs> 
And we got some exciting so, stuff coming up. So if you want to get involved on the ground uh, leading up to 2020, you want to learn how to organize your building, organize your school, absolutely. organize your workplace, uh, just generally learn how to be a thorn in the side of those in power, then yeah, come get with us. And uh, also yeah. a big shout out before we close out to the veterans that we organize with, especially those in About Face. Uh, today is Veterans Day. Uh, LA yes. has a massive crisis in unhoused veterans. We treat our veterans incredibly poorly. We send young men, men and women off to die and to kill other young, young men and women in service of those in power. And I'm not going to get all like troop crazy, but I will say that some of the best, most dedicated and most disciplined organizers I have the privilege to work with have military careers. And I am really grateful for them pushing me to be even more committed to justice and to be even yes. more committed to creating a just and safe and correct world for everyone. Yeah, can't shout out About Face nearly enough. Like, these guys are doing incredible work. Uh, and thanks, y'all, that, that we appreciate everything that you're doing and we stand alongside you. So uh, on that note, as always, if y'all have any events that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, send us a message through the Ground Game LA Facebook page or send an email over to podcast at groundgamela.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Ground Game LA, at Bushido Squirrel, at Christopher Roth, on Instagram at Ground Game LA, and of course, like and follow the Ground Game LA Facebook page for all of our live streamed content from actions around the city, as well as links from Knock. And of course, you can read stories from our comrades and sometimes the two of us dabbling a bit over at Knock.LA. If you'd like to read the sources that we've been citing or quoting for yourself, check out the list of articles cited in the episode description on SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, or wherever it is that you're listening to us rant and rave about local politics. As always, thank you so much for listening. Uh, talk to you all soon. Yeah, so I wanted to end real quick on a quote from Evo Morales because uh, we really yes. need to keep the fight against imperialism front and center in all of the organizing we do. But quote, we cannot have equilibrium in this world with the current inequality and destruction of Mother Earth. Capitalism is what is causing this problem and it needs to end. Thank you very much for everything you've done, Evo. Uh, this is a really scary week for people who are in Bolivia and people who are in the global yeah. south. The crisis on our southern border is going to escalate as our imperial destruction you know, accelerates. And we should all be yeah. doing everything we can to stop that. But to all of you out there, keep up the fight. And at some point soon, we will not be able to make a movie like Parasite because there won't be any more capitalism. Ha, yeah. All right. Thanks, guys.
Ed Moore.